0: Assalamu Alaikum, welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is part 3 of a collaboration between the Islamic History Podcast and the Islamic Vibes Podcast, which is hosted by brother Majid Hussein. In this series, we are discussing the role Islam and Muslims have played in the African slave trade. Of course, you can start listening from here and it should make sense, but you may also want to start from the first episode, which began about two episodes ago. If you want to hear the whole episode at once, the whole discussion at once, you can visit Brother Majid's podcast, which is called The Islamic Vibes Podcast. All right, going to keep the promos kind of short today. We want to get you right into the story. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get bonus content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Islamic History Exclusive is available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, at patreon.com slash History, and at islamichistoryexclusive.com. You may also want to subscribe to the Prophet Muhammad Podcast, that is a free podcast created by yours truly, chronicling the life of the last messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and it is available on all podcast platforms. So, so this will be the final episode of this series, and so let's continue our discussion of Islam, slavery, and Africa.
1: be clear there i want to make sure people understand that people let's not think of africa as one monolith africa has thousands of different ethnicities so just like um, french and german people they all that divides them is a line in in the dirt that's what divides france and germany but they still consider themselves two different two separate people same thing so these africans were not necessarily selling their brothers so to speak they were selling another group of people who they might have been at war with or had a feud with or whatever Things like that. They did not consider them their quote unquote brothers. They considered them their enemy or their rival in most cases.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from, from what uh, some reading I did at the time, there were actually, uh, I can't think of any names right now, but there were even uh, uh, African scholars who were working mm-hmm. to stop, stop uh, certainly Muslim slaves being sold uh, to the Europeans at that time. Um you know just just to make it clear as well that because uh, let, let's move on to the transatlantic uh slave trade and and, and also okay. then sort of like um bringing you the the question of you know the difference between that's that slavery the way people are treated and 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 in just say the muslim world but just to make it clear the europeans they purchased these slaves from africans they didn't mm-hmm. actually go and raid and take those did they Take the slaves today.
1: In most cases, that's true, yes. There were some cases of Europeans doing raiding, but that was the exception, not the rule. It was just much easier to just buy them from the existing, um, from the existing um, groups that are already there. There were some Muslims involved in that part, because there were Muslim empires there. They were kind of by the time the slave, the transatlantic slavery was really getting into gear, the Muslim empires of West Africa were gone or weak and falling apart. And, and fighting, and there it was really fractured by then. But there, they still have some. And so, just off of um, the coast of Senegal, there was there was a up, there were um, a slave a slave port right there. Now, the, in the early in the very early stages, there were some Portuguese who tried to raid into the uh, African the West African coastland to try to raid people, raid and capture people. But at that time the military technology between the Europeans and the Africans were about the same. And the Africans were still, the African uh, kingdoms at that period of time were strong enough to fight the Portuguese off and chase them away. Over time, the, imbal- the imbalance changed. But even then, the Europeans generally found it easier to just buy slaves off of the, uh, the Africans that already existed there because they already had the inbuilt market. Now, after the uh, West African empires began to fracture and fall apart, this, of course, led to warfare, and with more warfare and more fracturing, lots of fighting came, and this is not just in the Muslim world, in the Muslim parts of Africa, also in the non-Muslim parts of Africa. There's lots of fighting going on, lots of division and fracturing apart, leading to more POWs and allowed the Europeans to set up a whole bunch of slave force all across West Africa, starting from Senegal, going all the way down to the southwest, known as Bight of Biafra. Was now uh, Benin, Nigeria, Togo, places like that, all the way through down to um, I think as far south as Cameroon and Congo and places like that. So it allowed the Europeans to create all these slave forts. And most of these places were not Muslim territory, by the way. Most of these places now were um, either they some of them had converted to Christianity, and there were actually some Christian slave traders, Africans Christian slave traders. There were some some there as well, and there are also many. Um, Africans who follow traditional African religions who did slave trading as well from just fighting with other Africans and of course the European demand fueled all of this division and anarchy in the first place. There are, there are instances where, with well, one thing, slaves were often betrayed for traded for guns and weapons so that the, the local African governments could of course fight against their enemies and perpetuate the cycle. There was a few cases where I think this might have been a Muslim as well where some of the Muslims tried to, African Muslims tried to organize and try to refuse to sell uh, slaves to the Europeans. But the Europeans said, if you don't give it to us, we'll we'll sell these guns to your enemy instead. And sometimes they deliberately, um, just sometimes just gave guns to the <laughs> to the enemy. So the enemy tribe, or I don't say enemy tribe, is probably the wrong word, so the enemy African, African state could fight the The Muslim African state. I think I think
2: there was this one. You probably know. I can't remember the name now. Uh, There was uh, a a certain area where Mm -hmm. there were Muslims. I think they may have been maybe at some stage slaves, but they set up uh, the kingdom of um, Futuaro or or, or something like this, where basically Mm -hmm. they were against the uh, enslavement and selling to Europeans. And what eventually happened was the Europeans sided with the, the, the enemies surrounding them and took them out.
1: Right, right. I think that, that was in part of Senegal. I, I want to say, I, I don't, I want, I'm going to get the wrong, if I think of it, I'm going to get the wrong name, but I know to, I have, I've heard that story also. Um, it's a book, I, I could probably give it to you if you want to include the links And There's a book that I would um, suggest people read as far as, I mean, if you want to know about the Muslim African resistance, slavery. Um, that when they try, I can't remember, the top my name. it's written by um, a French African woman from Senegal. I believe she was Muslim, uh, but I'll, I'll bring it up. Um, I'm not, I know I, don't, I don't remember the name now, but I'll bring, I can bring it up, I'll give the link to it later on. But yeah, that was definitely true. There were Muslims who tried to resist it, but you know, they, there was too much anarchy. They were too weak. The Europeans, by, by a certain period of time, European technology was greater than the uh, African technology, as far as weapons were concerned, and so they were able to continuously uh, somehow another, another maneuver the Africans against each other mm. to keep that that, uh, that they, slave they be, going. They've
2: always been good at that.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so th- that kept that kept the wheel going. So and there's some estimates somewhere between 13 to 25 percent of all the slaves came to the Americas were Muslim. In fact, um, many of the early before the American Revolution, before the United States became the United States and still 13 colonies and the Europeans are still colonizing North America, there was actually more of a demand for Muslim slaves because the Muslim slaves, generally those who came from West Africa, whether it's Mali or Senegal, places like that, uh, Gambia, they already had knowledge of cultivation. They already had knowledge of ironworking. They had all this knowledge of race. So there's a high demand for for um, slaves from these regions that were predominantly Muslim. So places like Louisiana, uh, Louisiana um, in the Southern United States had a large, it was, it was first um, colonized by the French then eventually came, came over to the English and then to the, well, French and then to the Americas. But before that happened, there was also some Spanish down there as well. But generally speaking, Louisiana is um, in support, is to, is to the mouth of the Mississippi River. And so it is, um, it was, really valuable for rice cultivation and rice grew in Africa for centuries. Mm-hmm. And so Africans already knew how to cultivate rice and especially in the Muslim regions. And if you go to, rice is a staple food in many parts of the Muslim world, but if you go to West Africa now, rice is still a staple food in Africa, in West Africa, in um, the Muslim parts of West Africa. And it was here the same way. So there's a demand for Muslim slaves here. Uh, and and if you go to, down into Brazil, there were actually, um, I had to do some more research on there actually a rebellion against, uh, a Muslim slave rebellion against the um, the um, colonizers in that region. I, I don't have too much details on it, so don't have too many questions about it, but that happened because of Muslims. And even in the Americas, there was, um, in Louisiana as well, Louisiana, there was a, a slave revolt, can't remember his name right now, of, uh, that was led by a, a Muslim slave, a Muslim African slave. I can't remember the name right now, it'll come to me eventually, but. Yeah, there was a point in time where Muslims were highly. It wasn't necessarily they wanted Muslim per se; they just wanted people from a certain region, and that region just happened to have a lot of Muslims. But,
2: but you mentioned a, a large, a large percentage there. So, I mean, did they did they eventually be uh, con- you know did they have to convert or because mm-hmm. that, it, that doesn't reflect the 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 sort of black population in America yeah. in regards
1: to Muslims, is it number wise, right? Those um, early Africans who came over here who were Muslim and were enslaved. Now, bear in mind that most of the Africans who came here, many of them would have been warriors. Whether Muslim or non-Muslim, many of them would have been warriors, so they would have been, if they had survived the, the, um, the whole slave trade and then come across the Atlantic Ocean, they would have been the strongest of the strongest. They would have been, you know, so they would have been uh, pretty, pretty well, pretty uh, physically fit. And then you have the Muslims who have the knowledge as well. So now,
2: what what sort of percentage sort because of, what you, what you're saying is that the, the journey itself was probably the hardest part. I mean, yeah. what, what was the percentage like off the top of your head? Like, is it like fifty percent? Yeah,
1: of, I've heard attrition rates as high as high as fifty percent. That um, they were so, that they could expect they basically calculated into their into their accounting of the slave trade. Uh, that at least 50% of their wares of their merchandise will not make it across the, um, the Atlantic Ocean. And there were rules put in place to try to mitigate that and humanize it and all, but those were for the most part ignored. Um, it, was, it was a business enterprise and there was almost no way to, to uh, really regulate that back then. It would be very difficult to regulate it now. There's almost no way to regulate back then either. So, um, but there were, as far as um, those early Muslims who were enslaved in the United States, partic- I don't know much about the Caribbean, the Muslims who came into the Caribbean, but as far as the United States is concerned, the Muslims who came here, many of them would have tried to hold on to their faith as long as they could. They would have been careful, the, the um, establishment, this, the dominant society, so to speak, would have been careful not to allow them to congregate for so much, not to allow them to definitely would have been no praying in congregation, none of that sort of stuff. That would have been, that would have been too much of a threat. Mm. Have a bunch of people speaking the same language, you don't understand, you don't understand praying together, and and you know that would have been a threat. It would have been very difficult for them to hold on to their faith. They may have tried. So you're just talking about first of all, they could probably track the the um the moon phases to know when it's Ramadan, the time to fast and stuff like that. Maybe they could, maybe they could have done that. Maybe. They would have tried maybe to speak in their prayers when they could, but eventually it would have to marry or have a child or, you know, and the um, society did not prevent that, actually wanted it because it, it brought them more slaves, naturally, and so it would have been very unlikely for Islam to carry on to the next generation, even if that first generation happened. Now, there are lots of slave narratives of, and actually, I uh, mean, perhaps let me think something ahead of something I have, I'll get to them in a second. There are lots of slave narratives of second generation and third generation slaves talking about seeing their grandparents face the East and pray to the East and, and praying with beads and things, and things like this. And there are, um, because understand by the um, slave, the slave trade ended in the United States, when I say the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, ended in the United States in the early 1800s. The constitution outlawed, outlawed about 1812, I can't remember, 1810, something like that. I think 1820, maybe. So they outlawed the import of new African slaves around the early 1800s. Slavery ended with the Civil War in 1864, 1865. So you have about 40 years. So there is enough time there for people to know their Muslim or to have seen their Muslim grandparents or parents maybe even trying to practice their religion. But it would have been very hard for it to have survived beyond one or two generations. And there are there are even the Library of Congress, you can go to the Library of Congress website, there's a brother named um, Saeed Ibn, I can't remember his last name, but he wrote a whole, they were surprised because of the um, his white masters and the white people who controlled his society at that time. They were surprised to see this man who they thought was a slave, right all his whole man, he wrote his whole manuscript, all this stuff about how he became a slave, about um, his life as a slave, and how the life as it was in Africa. It's all in the Library of Congress. Sa'id ibn, I can't remember his last his um, last name right, right now. Now he said that he converted to Christianity in his manuscript. It's all written in Arabic, by the way. You can read it, you can see him praising Allah, praising the Prophet Muhammad. And you can it's all there written and everything. Though he says he had converted to Christianity, you know, there's because he he starts off with Bismillah and Rahim and things like that, it's hard to really hard to really believe that because maybe he was just saying that just to survive. That could have been very likely. A knows best. I don't know what his, nobody could tell what his heart was at that time, but still he wrote about his life in Africa before he was taken slave, he wrote about how he came over to the Americas and all. So, and like I said, it's all, library of Congress. It's all digitized. Anyone wants to go, wants to go see it. But in most cases, it would have been hard to keep it, to keep Islam the going. There is one thing I wanted to mention though, there's um in the south in the southern United States, it's not as much in practice now, but there was a a practice amongst Africans called ring and shout. It's a um, it's uh, it's a bit of a tradition. It's, it's a kind of a Christian thing where um black people would sing gospel music and walk around in a circle. And there'll be maybe one person, maybe playing a guitar or playing some sort of instrument kind of leading the whole chant and the whole um, ceremony. And it's called ring and shout, something along those lines. It's not so much in practice now, but you can still find videos of it online. That was, that practice is a direct result from things happening in Africa, not only from non-Muslim Africans, but also from Sufi Africans as well. You can go now and watch videos of Sufi African of African Muslim Sufis, Doing similar things where it's still one single person leading the chant. Now, of course, they're doing vicar. We call it vicar now, not not gospel. They'll be doing vicar, all dressed in white, just like just like over here in the United States. And we're, and, and moving in a counterclockwise circle as they vicar and chant. Or in the United States, it was singing gospel music, but still, that's a direct result of this tradition coming from Sufi Islam, and maybe it existed in the non-Muslim areas as well, but I know for certain it existed in in uh, Sufi circles in Africa as well, and that came over here in the United States. It's not so much in practice now, but in certain parts of the United States as well, where the, um, the slave or the African society or the Black society was more isolated from the main group of the main society, you'll see a lot more of these African, and even some Islamic traditions persist even further. For instance, there are some islands off the coast of South Carolina called uh, where they call them Gullah and Geechee. They have different names of it. But you can see a lot more of um, these African and even some Islamic practices at stake. Even though they're all Christian now, you can see some of these roots going straight back to Africa as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. SubhanAllah. I mean, the the reason why I asked that question as well is because you, you do get sometimes... Uh, people from, you know, Africa, uh, Afro-American who basically blame the Muslims for the transatlantic slave trade as well. But, But maybe they're not aware that such a big percentage of those people that were taken across were Muslim, so so bro one one last thing i want to just get a few of your thoughts on um mm-hmm. because there's so much still to discuss but maybe we have to do no. that another podcast right is
1: mm-hmm.
2: in regards to the trans, trans we spoken about the transatlantic slave trade and the conditions and stuff like that but i think it's important because uh, for for our listeners not to put everything under this one category of slavery how we understand it so, you know, some, so maybe if you can give some examples of what the conditions were for the the, the slaves that were taken to, you know, uh, the, the Americas compared to
1: mm-hmm.
2: what we would still call slaves, but in North Africa, in the, the the Muslim lands, because there's many examples, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to get to that in a second, Brother Majid, but I want to go back to your first point about um, you have a lot of Africans, people of African descent, who blame Muslims for such and such and such. Now, for your listeners, I am a descendant of slaves. Okay, my both sides of my family came from either Alabama or Mississippi. So, um, both of my parents converted to Islam, and so I was born into the relig- into the faith, alhamdulillah. Now, I can't say that Muslims were completely not involved in the transatlantic slave trade, but for the Arabs, are, the Arab Muslims are generally free of this accusation. There were very few Arabs involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Now the trans-Saharan slave trade, yes, you can blame them, on you can, but that's really for the Africans in Africa to worry about. They, that's, their, they need, that's their beef. They want to discuss, argue about that, they can go them. So us on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. We can't really blame the Arabs for us being over here. There were some Muslims involved in it and the slave trade, yes, but there are many more just by pure numbers. There are many more non-Muslim Africans involved, many, many more, Mm -hmm. and and Muslims made up a good population of the slaves who, who were brought over as well, so to blame Muslims for this or Islam is really disingenuous, especially when most, and I hear these things as well, I know I'm getting off point, but I hear these things as well where when when people try to, there's a big reparations movement right now going on in the United States, trying to um, get the United States to pay um, some sort of financial compensation to the descendants of slaves for all the work that helped build this country up. And so the movement like that right now, and many people try to, as you mentioned before, deflect. There's a whole lot of what aboutism? Well, what about this? And what about that? And the first what aboutism to go to, is what about the Arabs? What about the Muslims? Again, that has very little to do with me and my ancestors. We have almost nothing to do with that (laughs) because Muslims had very little to do with the transatlantic slave trade, Arab Muslims involved. There were some African Muslims involved, but they were a small percentage compared to the non-Muslim Africans who were involved in it. And even if so, there would have only been maybe at best, maybe 25% of the slave trade was, was the responsibility of Muslim Africans. And that's being very, very generous. It's probably even less than that. So as far as once they got on that boat, once they came across, once they got on the boat, actually, it was pure Europeans at that point in time, up until everything else happened after that, and even in the middle of that. So to say that it was Muslims or Arabs or anything like that for the transatlantic slave trade is very disingenuous and it exhibits a lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge, and it's not really... Is not it's, it's not fair at all to blame Muslims for that. That is uh, a big deflection by people who don't want the spotlight shine on them for the evil that their ancestors have done. Now I talked about that for that what you're going to say. You are talking about the treatment of the treatment of slaves to different places,
2: right? And I'm re- I'm really okay. happy that you you cleared it up in the way you did mm-hmm. because that's really important. And and, and you know mm-hmm. you hear that quite a bit. You hear that quite a bit. And, and coming from yourself, explaining it the way you did, Subhanallah and Zakala, that, that was on point.
1: Well, Yakum. I mean, like I said, the, the people in Africa, they want to talk about, and it's not just um, Arabs they got to worry about. They can also talk about the Muslim Africans who are involved. They, they can argue with them. But also over here in the Americas, the Caribbean, we really can't blame Muslims for, the, for this one. This is um, Muslims that not have really much to do with this. So regarding the um, treatment of slaves, now, generally speaking, slaves have been mistreated all over the world. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of slavery. Um, slaves are, gen- are generally mistreated, um, unfortunately. And no matter how many rules you have, and in the Americas they have rules too about how you can treat a slaves, and they were generally ignored for the most part. And in, in Muslim society, we have our rules as well um, in, about treatment of slaves. And sometimes they were ignored, sometimes they weren't. But generally speaking, definitely the treatment of Muslims, I'm sorry, the treatment of slaves in Muslim society was a hundred times better than in non-Muslim society. For one thing, as I mentioned, most of the slaves were domestic slaves. You can't really, and these are also slaves who were brought over for, lack of a better phrase, for sexual purposes. I mean, you're not going to, you know, brutalize the mother of your children or the potential mother of your children, someone whom you hope to procreate with at some point in time. So I'm not saying abuses didn't occur, obviously they did, but, it was not to the, certain, to the same extent. Um, I'll just, I'm doing some research right now on a man named Frederick Douglass. He was a former slave who escaped slavery and moved, and moved up north and, and everything, became a big abolitionist right before the Civil War happened. His father was white, was white and his mother was, was black, a black slave. Now, his description of some of the things he's seen as a slave, he was in Maryland, by the way. And Maryland is one of the northernmost American states. And so slaves in Maryland were treated much better than slaves in the South, even mm-hmm. in, in, in the deeper South, but it's still with a slave state. And the things he saw there were so horrific. And the things that he experienced during his time as a slave, he mentioned how he had a 15-year-old aunt. He was a little boy. He had a 15-year-old aunt who the master really wanted for himself, basically. But she kept rebuffing him and 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 not accepting his advances, but she had, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a, a, a black boyfriend that she really wanted to be with. And he forbade her from going to, his, to, to, her, to her boyfriend. When she disobeyed him, as most 15 year old girls would do, he, t- he had her tied to a post, and this is in Frederick Douglass's own work. He wrote his own autobiography. So there's not, you can easily go get it easily and read it. Had her stripped bare, and just whipped her on her back to a point where blood was running down, all down her back. And this is what he saw, and this is in Maryland. Another case where a man who was the former governor of Maryland, he was a former governor of Maryland, but he was a very rich and powerful man. He had two slaves, two men, an old man and his son, who were responsible for caring for his horses. That's the only job for this. The only job I say was to care for for the horses. The way Frederick Douglass Frederick described how this man, who was a former governor and senator of Maryland, a politician, the way he would find every reason to beat these slaves. He beat the slaves for not feeding the horses enough. He beat the slaves for overfeeding the horses. And, and this was an old man who he would force him to, to put his head between his legs. The, the uh, white slave owner would force the old slave to put his to kneel down, put his head between his legs, and just whip them <laughs> over and over about his head. Same thing with his son. This is a common practice where these two couldn't escape slavery. And these are, this was once again, Maryland. And I cannot stress enough, Maryland compared to the deep south, was the treatment of slaves was much better because slavery was dying out in Maryland. And it was right there by Washington, DC, and right there by the north, by the northern states where slavery was mostly outlawed by then. So you know was in the deep south, places like Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, of all places, it was much, 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 much worse. It's, you will definitely hear about abuses of slaves in the Muslim world. Yeah, I'm just doing some history on the, dynasty, on the Umayyad dynasty right now. And even when their treatment of, say, Persian slaves, they even free Persian slaves, there are lots of abuses there, but nothing on this level. I mean, the, yeah. the trauma on this level, the Caribbean, and as bad as the America was, the Ameri- North America was, the Caribbean was even worse. Because I mean, in, the, in the United States, they wanted, to, they wanted to keep their slaves alive because the United States eventually outlawed the import of slaves from outside the country. And so they had to keep their slaves alive and have them continue to procreate, because there were no more coming in from Africa after a certain period of time. The Caribbean didn't have those rules, even though um, the British empire ended slavery beforehand, they didn't have the same rules. also in the Americas, most slave owners lived in the Americas with their slaves. And so there was a certain certain, um, selfish consideration to maintain their business property. Whereas in the Caribbean, most of the slave owners lived in the UK or in France or in Spain, wherever they came from. And so you usually had overseers controlling the slave plantations in the Caribbean. And just like when you, when you rent a car, you often, you don't always take care of that car because it's not your car. Same thing with these overseers. It wasn't their, it wasn't their slaves. It wasn't their property. So the mistreatment in the Caribbean was much worse than the mistreatment in the United States. So as bad as the Americas was, the Caribbean, was even worse and also the caribbean they're outnumbered as well the um most of the caribbean states right now most of the caribbean nations right now are predominantly black whereas here in the united states blacks are still part of their minority populations so yeah, yeah. treatment was was there's no way to compare the treatment between the two abuses would happen but the abuses in the muslim world at least theoretically would not be tolerated by the state government. The, now, of course, things, things would happen when people would get away with it, but technically speaking, legally, Muslims couldn't mistreat their slaves. Now, in the Americas, there's some rules for that, but it happened too often for it to be, It was because it was a race-based thing uh, in, the, in the Americas, for instance, it was illegal for slaves to, it was illegal for even free black people to testify in court unless it was against another black person. They couldn't even testify in court against another white person. Yeah. That would never happen in the Muslim world. In the Muslim world, a Muslim of any, of any background could testify for or against another Muslim no matter what their background was. Now, that doesn't mean there was any d- discrimination, but it wasn't the same level. And which the, out, the outcome of it is still, is still going on right now. I mean, we don't have to go, but so far from slavery, you got the reconstruction era, and you got what was um, 100 years of Jim Crow, where there's legalized segregation in the United States, in the southern the United States. In the northern United States, it was cultural segregation. In the southern United States, it was legal segregation. And it was more of a separation, it was more creating a different caste system. It was more of a caste system. I only say closer to a class society. It was more of a caste system that tried its best to prevent the intermingling of mm-hmm. Blacks and whites throughout much of the, much of the South. And to maintain a superior position of whites over blacks throughout much of the South through um, separation and also through uh, legal coercion and all the other tricks and trade and tools they use. In the North, it was a little bit better, but they had, it was more cultural at that point in time. And these things are still being felt even today. In the, Arab, in the Muslim world, I can't say that you won't find any discrimination. Of course you will, it, but it's not on the same level. No. It would not be the same as you find
2: it here. No, no, exactly, bro. And that, that's why even sort of in my intro, I, I linked it, the fact that this this topic, certainly in America, it, it hasn't gone away because Jim Crow, civil rights movement, all these things up until what happened last year, you know, it's its all linked where even if you think about it, you mentioned um, the...
1: It happened last month,
2: Buffalo. Buffalo, oh, Buffalo. Yeah, <laughs> forgot all about Buffalo. Yeah, you that know, just yeah, happened
1: last month. So.
2: Happened last month. And, and, and it's important because maybe, you know, in, in other areas, slavery was to do with a class, the class difference, whilst in America, certainly race had a part to play where those people were kind of subhuman. They weren't seen as, mm-hmm. as on the same level as human beings. But I think what, another thing that's really important um, is... Even those people that were freed. So the people in the the like in America, for example, you know, uh, if you watch the movie Twelve Years a Slave, you have a freed black man who's then enslaved again. So right. they always must have be been looking over their shoulder because if they weren't they, they ended up in the wrong place, they would be taken, mm-hmm. right? But you look in, in in the Islamic heritage is in the history, we'd have Bilal he was the first Muaddin. You know, and he stood on the most holiest place in Islam, the Kaaba, to do the Adhan. You had, you know, many mm-hmm. examples like uh, uh, Sokolu uh, Mehmet Pasha, who was actually given uh, into slavery from his Serbian family, and he became the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman state. You have, mm-hmm. issues, you have examples like Malik Ambar in, in India, who he was, I right. think, from Abyssinia, I think he was, and he became like, you know, uh, he became a, the, the de facto ruler of the place so the differences, and i think that's why it's really important to 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 show this the fact that you can't say slavery was the same everywhere certainly nobody wants right. to be a slave but it's strange how in the muslim lands you actually saw people that people were encouraged or they were put into slavery and it's, it's here now it's mind-boggling to think that there were people parents who gave their children into slavery why not because to go on the plantations, but because they would move up in society and eventually could be rulers. This is—it's right. <laughs> it's really hard to comprehend this, um, mm-hmm. but this is the this is the reality. Uh, one last question, bro. I want to mention to you uh, because you know, um, otherwise this is going to be a blockbuster episode where it's going to be too long, okay. right? Um, mm-hmm. And I want to get your thoughts on this because what there is the there is the debate of the moral awakening narrative and the economic narrative. And I'm talking about in the West, I'm talking about the in abolition, because the point I made before was up until the 1700s, around that time, abolition wasn't really spoke about. It was just, slavery was just part of life. It was just there. Um, and, you know, some people, it wasn't seen as like a, a, a moral evil, right? But what you see yeah. is like what the West trying to portray is through the enlightenment period that you know they had this moral awakening that they realized that slavery is a moral evil and hence why we see that uh, the first kind of nations who uh, put forward and abolished was like great britain and, and in the americas and and, and so on now what my question to you is that do you think that it's a coincidence this is just your personal opinion here do you think it's a coincidence that this moral awakening occurred At the time, and certainly in those areas where you Mm -hmm. had the start of and and the industrial revolution, where beforehand, maybe animals and and humans were needed to transport stuff and and stuff like this. But now you could use fossil fuels and you could use water powered uh, technology and so on. Do you think it's a coincidence?
0: Right,
1: well, every great society, every great nation, or every great society, I mean, great society that expanded had to have almost, almost all cases until very recently needed slavery to build itself up. Whether the Romans, Greeks, Arabs, French, Spanish, Russians, Chinese, Indians, no matter which one, they are almost before the advent of technology If you wanna build great monuments, you wanna build build great cities, you wanna have large armies to protect your your borders and to expand, slavery was almost always used in order to do that. Once the Europeans had conquered most of the Western hemisphere, most of North America, the Caribbean and South America, once it got their societies established and once um, they began to move away from the restrictions of their churches and began to think more secularly and began to expand and become more, um, more secular and look into science and technology. Eventually, the, the train, the steam engine, uh, these things began to make slavery obsolete. And so the use of slavery became a redundant thing. And now people could think about, well, maybe this is the wrong thing to do. Maybe we shouldn't use it. Now, I'm not saying that every abolitionist thought, okay, well, we have a steam engine now, let's free all the slaves. I don't think they thought that, but the coincidence, the timing is not a coincidence. That's what I should say. The timing is not a coincidence. Once the societies had been built up, once they got the Industrial Revolution going on and technology appears to show that, um, you know, we really don't need human labor to do all these things anymore. Once that began to happen, the need for slavery and the brutality and the unsightliness of it all began to be something that was more of a burden and more societies began to, particularly the British were probably the first. Uh, I think the last might have been uh, either, as far as the Western Hemisphere is concerned, either the, uh, the Spanish or the Portuguese. Brazil, I think, didn't free them until like 1880, something like that, Cuba maybe even later than that. But in any case, yes, with the advent of our uh, technology and the industrial revolution, steam engine, all these things were coming along, electricity. I mean, we literally had telegraph during the Civil War. People could literally communicate with people within seconds, oh, hundreds of miles away in the Civil War. A few years after a few years, few years after the Civil War ended, a few you had steamships crossing the Atlantic Ocean within a matter of days. You know, the, the first airplane flew in 1903, you know, and just a few years before that, Cuba finally into slavery, just a few years before that. So that's, yes, the advent of technology helped to make us know so that slavery was no longer a requirement. But even with all that, with all, even with all that, the United States still had to kill three quarters of a million of its own people in order to end slavery, even with the morality of it all, even with the... The British and the French saying slavery is wrong need to end that, even with the Industrial Revolution booming in the Northern states, even with all that, the slave state, the slaveholding states of the, South who, of the South who did not really need slaves anymore, they didn't need anymore, they still found a way to justify and were willing to go to war with their own people in oh. order to keep it and kill almost a million of each other. Several Americans died in the Civil War on both sides. Altogether on both sides. It, it took all of that nearly destroying this country in order to end slavery. That's what it took. So, the moral reckoning of it all, the moral reasoning of it all, I mean, I'm not saying that, once say I don't believe that every abolitionist would necessarily say that, okay, let's end slavery now. We, we have a telegraph now. We don't need slaves anymore. I'm not saying everyone like that. Everyone was like that, but definitely it allowed people to sit back and reflect on things and allow governments to see that, okay, well, maybe we can't end this brutal practice that we've had for so long. And even with all that, there are many people fighting to keep it going and not just a few, many, okay? Thousands of people fighting to keep it going on, even when it was obviously no longer necessary for the the, um, maintenance of their society.
2: Yeah, no, no, jazakala, bro. And I just want to mention, oh, yeah. there's a quote that I came across uh, by Aristotle, and uh, who we know mm-hmm. died in uh, 322 BC, and he said that there will be slavery until looms spin themselves. <laughs> okay.
1: um, yeah, exactly. You, you know what mm-hmm. I mean?
2: But, bro, this in you know, it's been a a blockbuster episode. Um, we've oh, covered so much, so much, and now, I, now I know why when we originally started speaking about this, you were thinking maybe it's a few episodes because there's so much to discuss. And there's, I'm mm-hmm. sure there's so much, which we've left out, but, but um, bro, any, any sort of final thoughts from yourself and also maybe uh, uh, mention any, any new projects that you're, you're working mm-hmm. on just, just for our listeners to get ready for some new content.
1: Yeah. So right now um I'm in between episodes. So I actually, I'm sorry, in between seasons. I just finished this season. What was it Just a few months ago, we finished the um, Bosnian War. Um, I hope to move on to the Mughal Empire in a couple of months, inshallah. I do actually want to cover um, the uh, brother just mentioned from East Africa who can, who uh, became an emperor or de facto ruler in India, um, Ambar, Malik Ambar. I do I want know. to cover him. Yeah, I plan on covering him sometime. Maybe later this month or early next month. Awesome. So I'm going to do an episode on, on him. We are now currently doing a series on Africa in general on Islam in Africa. We just had um, uh, Somalia in Islam um, with a brother from the UK, Muhammad um, Artan. We just I just had a conversation with him. It's up available now. Um, he's a Somali, but he lives in the in the UK right now, and he's uh, he's really good on Islam and East Africa in general. So uh, I encourage you to listen to that. Also, I have a series going on the Sokoto Caliphate um, that will, I've already started it and more episodes will be coming out soon, inshallah. So I encourage people to listen to that and we'll, we'll touch on slavery in Africa as well in these episodes and it will come out. We're not going to be, I'm not going to really dive deep into it, but it will be mentioned uh, in those episodes. So inshallah, I think it'll be a pretty good thing, but hopefully later this fall, I hope to have um, the next series on the Mughal Empire up and ready, inshallah.
2: Yeah, no, no, that's uh, that's that's really good, bro. Mashallah. I know, you know, uh, I really would encourage everyone to check out the Islamic history podcast. Um, it's 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 funny, it's funny because uh, on one website that I went on, it was ranked number one Islamic uh, history podcast. Um, oh, okay. and, uh, so I thought, Mashallah, Mashallah, really good because the the work is really good and and the the sort of areas you cover, and hence why when we were you know when I wanted to discuss this issue through slavery. Because it was like on forums and on the internet And people when they would raise the issue To do with the treatment from the Europeans You would get voices saying Well what about the Muslims or the Arabs And that's when I reached out and I said Bro you know what I want to do something on this topic yeah, right?" Yeah. You know, and you said look it's a big topic Let's take our time And you know let, let's work on it And Alhamdulillah I think hopefully we've done Some justice to this topic And um, anything we missed You know people can contact myself And maybe we can do a follow up uh, on Absolutely. a particular question or anything like that, uh, but certainly go and mm-hmm. check out the Islamic History podcast, um, the Bosnia, uh, the the Bosnia season seven, the the Bosnia season. It was was amazing, and certainly one uh, mm-hmm. certainly for people in in Europe, especially my around my age, um, who mm-hmm. remember when it happened. Uh, if you want a, a comprehensive viewpoint on on what went on. Definitely recommend that season. But bro, listen, JazakAllah here yeah. for joining me on this yeah. uh, on this uh, episode, man. You really it was uh, like I said, I've not done one for about six weeks, and you know we we're gonna come back with a bang, and uh, no yeah. one better yeah. than yourself. And uh, you know, really, Inshallah, ta'ala, really encourage that you continue doing what you're doing, and, uh, and so yeah, much, like yeah, to make way. you successful, and, and you know, and make you successful yeah, in, in this world and in the akhara, and for all the listeners. You know, you can access uh, the Islamic Voice podcast on YouTube, on my Pastor Revival website, and also on all popular podcast platforms. And a special shout out to the Islamic History podcast. Definitely check it out. Even if you don't like history, trust me, you listen to a few episodes, you'd become a history lover. And uh, we've actually even done a, a topic on why Islamic history is important.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, so that's something which, uh, you know, you need to listen to because it is important. It's not academic it's important even the, the things that brother mutaki spoke about today you, if you don't know this you will crumble under the the pressure of you know the accusations it will just it will automatically you will not be able to reason it just won't make sense um, oh. but bro inshallah on that note, a mm. big zakra khair to you and uh, inshallah taala hopefully see you soon assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
1: Wa alaikum wa wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.